0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Our podcast sponsor today is strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And what you will get is an overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a one page download that you can get and use for your work. And if you're looking for another role and need to polish your resume, which happens even at more senior levels, you can get McKinsey and BCG winning resume free download as well. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. And firms consulting is, of course, F-I-R-M-S consulting. Today we have with us Lan Van Chaplin. Lan is an integrated marketing communications professor at Northwestern University who conducts research in children's consumer behavior and branding. She publishes an outlet such as Science and Harvard Business Review. And today we are going to focus on how to disrupt a system that was built to hold you back. And if we have time, we will also touch on a topic of how to move past an embarrassing moment at work. Welcome, Lan. So great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Lan, first of all, I wanted to mention I love your name. I found out that it actually means Snow Orchid, which is such a beautiful name. What is the history of it? Why your parents decided to give it to you? Because it's such a rare name. That's a good question.
2: I don't know that I've actually had a formal conversation with my parents about why they chose the name. So all I know is that they've, um, they they have always seen me as someone who is very strong, but they couldn't have known that when they named me. So maybe I just lived up to what they were expecting of me.
1: And you are the youngest of 14 children and your parents immigrated. So it's a difficult start. Usually I myself immigrated three times. I know how hard it is. So maybe you could share with us a little bit. What was it like grow up as the youngest of 14 children? and uh, how it shaped you as a leader
2: yeah i get this question a lot actually and i'm I'm never sure how to answer it because there are so many from from the perspective of being the youngest child um you don't have a voice you you really don't because and then you you combined um a traditional vietnamese family um so i grew up in the united states but uh my family is very um We follow all the traditional um, celebrations that Vietnamese people celebrate. And so, a group in a family where I straddle two cultures, the American culture and the Vietnamese culture. I straddle two languages, um, English and Vietnamese. And I also experienced a generation gap because my parents were so much older. Um, And so, while my nieces, while I identified a lot with my nieces and nephews. I was their aunt. I am their aunt. And so I have to be the aunt but yet I'm closer to their age. And so that's always been a little tricky to deal with the the hierarchy in the family. So the hierarchy combined with the the Vietnamese culture of younger people, not speaking old over older people and always listening to older people. um, That gave me a sense that I didn't have a voice. And it was really hard to develop a voice. And now I'm in business and um, it's a male-dominated industry and you have to develop a voice and you have to develop a strong voice. So I've always struggled with that a little bit because of my upbringing. So a lot of people thought, or a lot of people would say, well, if you're the youngest of 14, you must be really feisty and you have this attitude and you have the strength to be, but I didn't that's the truth was that I was quite the opposite where I struggled to have a voice. And so now I'm a really good listener. I've, I've really, you know, honed in on the feel of listening and really understanding what different viewpoints are at stake and, and hearing the different viewpoints and being able to bring people's viewpoints together.
1: I can really relate because when I was growing up, I constantly heard know your place. And so on. So, you kind of learn that you don't have any rights to have an opinion and to to be uncomfortable, no matter how terrible the situation is. I always thought it was easier to be younger because I was the oldest child. So, oldest also comes with a lot of downsides as well, because you're responsible for all the youngest ones. We didn't have 14, we had four, but it still felt like a lot of children. And uh, I can completely understand the challenges. Do you remember some of the defining moments that helped you start finding your voice in this world? Uh, you mean within my family? Not even maybe within your family, but generally in life, some defining moments as you were growing up, going to college and so on, where you started changing.
2: So I ha- So at age six, I was ready to leave home at age six. So I packed my bags, I was ready to go. Called my oldest sister, she had already moved out. And I told her, I said, I'm leaving. I just don't think that this family is really for me, because I can never ask any questions. And so from a very young age, I felt like I had opinions, I had ideas. But I was in a position where I couldn't share them. I couldn't even ask any questions, because it would be disrespectful to question uh, an adult, right. And I was very respectful of that. So I, I didn't I never dared to to talk back or to even ask questions, but I also felt within me that this is this is not right. I need to ask questions and I need to have my own voice. And so I packed my bag. I had two, um, I filled up two grocery store bags full of clothes and shoes, or I had one pair of shoes. Um, and then and my my sister just panicked because she she felt responsible. So just a moment ago, you were talking about the responsibility of being the oldest. And, and so I can see that because I, I saw it in my oldest sister. She was panicked, and she actually—I don't remember too many of the details, but she has told me the details, and she has told me how scared she was. And I laugh about it today because I just can't believe that I was only six and I was ready to leave my family. I didn't—I I didn't know where to go. I'm sure I didn't know where I was going, but I was going. <laughs> I was going somewhere. Um, but she came over and she made sure that I stayed safe and. I, I still remember feeling like I'm going to do something and I'm going to do something different. So um, so that was a moment. Um, I would say another moment was just realizing that I had an opportunity to go to graduate school at some, um, some really good schools. And I decided that I was going to change majors I was going to change my area of interest after 4 years of studying neuroscience I was going to change and go into marketing. And it was that moment that I felt like for the rest of my life I'm just going to be exploring whatever's interesting. I'm not going to take a path where if I with neuroscience I'm going to become a neurosurgeon. You know, it wasn't going to be a straight path for me. I'm just at any point in time I'm just going to change paths and it's going to be okay as long as I'm interested
1: so this disrupting a system that was built to hold you back started very early on because in some ways when you cannot ask any questions as a 6 year old that has million questions a day that is very difficult even the way we learn as children we ask a lot of questions why is this that way and why why sky is blue and so on and you still focus on this so many years later and helping people in this area. And so many people I'm sure seeing those articles in Harvard business review and other places and writing to you and saying to you how helpful it was. Did you ever connected it in your own mind? I'm sure you did that this disruption, the system that was built to hold you back started on very early in your life.
2: I didn't until you approached me until you, um, and you contacted me on LinkedIn. So that was the first time that I started to think a little bit more. Because anytime you do a podcast, you you want to do a good job in answering questions. So I was trying to understand your show and trying to understand the purpose of your show and your audience. And then I started to think back about because you were interested in disrupting, the, uh, talking about disrupting the system. So I thought, why did I write that article? And so I I actually haven't thought about it until you um, approached me. And I'm so thankful because it really made me stop and just think about my life and how by the time I wrote that article, it was long overdue, right? I had already been thinking about these things and been feeling that um, I was working against either it was my my upbringing, which I wanted to be respectful of, but then it felt uncomfortable and I needed to break out of it or within the system of, for me, academia, which also oftentimes has felt uncomfortable and I needed to break out of the, the stereotype of this is what women do. This is how far women go um, in in the academic ladder. So, yeah.
1: Staying a little bit longer, we are almost ready to move on on the childhood story of you six years old. If you could go back and tell yourself share some advice with yourself. What would you tell yourself in terms of how to disrupt the system that is holding you back?
2: Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I, so, so I should, since I'm struggling with this question, I should just ask myself, what would I tell six year olds today? And I think if I were to visit a school, I would tell the six year olds to um, be kind to themselves and you know, if if something doesn't feel right, really think about it and don't assume that they're wrong to feel upset about something that maybe something is wrong and to be kind to, the, to themselves and to listen to themselves and to listen to the ideas that they have and to follow through with the ideas that they have.
1: Do you feel that if you gave yourself that advice at that time, would it be sufficient to see some progress or would ah, this it be comforting is- for you but still you would continue to experience all the challenges
2: it's hard you're asking such tough questions but very very good questions i feel like when i go to bed tonight i'll have better answers for you and it'll be too late (laughs) but um i think that it's hard i think it's very hard to give people advice to be kind to themselves because we're all really tough on ourselves i think it's hard to give advice to say follow your heart do what you feel like doing because we often can't follow our hearts. We can't, we can't do what we want to do because sometimes the system does hold us back. Sometimes culture holds us back. Sometimes, um, you know, just stereotypes hold us back. So it's hard, but at the same time, if enough people encourage us to do it, we might just do it. If I'm not the only person telling six-year-olds to, be kind to themselves and they get this reminder from their teachers, from their parents, from their grandparents, from p- other people in their lives, they might just do it. They might just follow that advice. It might just be a very normal thing to do.
1: Often people need to hear something many times, not just in marketing and advertising, but just generally in life. And from different people. So
2: I know for my kids, if they hear something from me, I know, they're not gonna listen to what I tell them. You know, Even if it has something to do with college, and I'm a professor. I, I for some reason, they they just won't listen to me, right? But if they hear it from a friend, they might just do what their friend says because they they will have heard it from me. Then their friend tells them. Then their teacher tells them. And so, just it's not just a number of times, but different people telling you.
1: Very true. Different people telling you, hearing it multiple times, and mm-hmm. eventually you start changing the way you think. So let's talk about a system that is holding us back as adults. And so many of us are facing it right now. So I think that this discussion is something that can be very helpful for people.
2: Yes. How would you like me to start?
1: Maybe we can take an example. So for example, academia. Okay. So Take a look at the system and the mechanisms that are going on and how people are held back. And then we can explore how you can manage the system to still succeed?
2: Right. So in any industry, I think that there are stereotypes.
1: Um,
2: not just gender stereotypes. Um, I, I, I think that in my industry, and I can only speak about my industry, which is academia, there are stereotypes about the extent to which a woman can be a leader what a leader looks like and um even even thinking about um the strengths of a leader so speaking up asking questions providing insights when it when you're a woman and you speak up a lot it's not perceived the same way as when a man speaks up it's just not Um, when you argue a point, it's not perceived as, oh, that's a really confident individual who is a strong leader. Um, That's a person with an attitude. That's a person who's difficult. That's a person who's hard to please, right? And so those are some stereotypes that are built into the system. And I don't want to talk about other industries because I'm not in other industries, but I do, from based on conversations with friends in other industries, I think that these stereotypes exist beyond academia. And so I would say that people can think about what a leader looks like. But it doesn't help. Because when you think about what a leader looks like, you have these stereotypes, which block your ability to allow other people to fill those roles, right? And so when we, when we hire, we're in a position where we have to, we do kind of have to envision what a leader looks like and whether this person can fill that role, right? So, but, so it's kind of difficult because on the one hand, we want to fill these leadership roles with strong leaders. And what does it mean to be a strong leader? We have to have some ideas. At the same time, it makes it very difficult for women um, and women of color to step into these roles.
1: These leadership roles, so it's it's difficult. It is absolutely, and also even men, because not every, for example, many of my clients are immigrants. So they worked really hard. They all life there, like you and me. They come in from very very low income families. And then they worked incredibly hard to be where they are today, but they still get so much discrimination because of because they're immigrants, because they don't speak English perfectly. This question, where are you really from? Or I remember when seeing it in your article really grabbed me because it really, when someone asks me and they have a little bit of a reaction to it, it it's a sign for me that I need to continue working on making sure that someday someone asks me and I have no reaction. So it shows areas as well that we need to work on.
2: I think that you should be proud. If people ask you where you're from, um, you are I mean, the way that you can look at it is you're bringing a really good perspective and that they don't have that perspective. So they're wondering where that perspective is from. I mean, that's the way that I've dealt with it. I, um, But I agree, you want it to be just, I'm just gonna answer, However, I feel comfortable without any negative emotion, so that I can stay focused. And because I've, I've been in a situation where you lose focus because you just think, I can't believe you asked that question. And that's not just where are you from, just other questions as well. I've gotten questions about, are you adopted? Your English is so good. Are you adopted? I've gotten that a lot. So, but I think that you should be, you should be proud that you're bringing in a different
1: perspective. Definitely. And I am proud of, I think for me, negative emotion coming from the source of it is how people in the past reacted once I answer. I had situations Mm -hmm. where people would, someone would come to me in the store and be incredibly friendly and talk to me. And then they would ask me where I'm from and I would answer and they will walk out store so i had situations like that multiple times different degree of negativity and this is the source i think of my reaction what do
2: you mean they walk out what what's happening why are they walking out after you answer their question
1: it was very interesting that's so odd so let's talk about now that we established the system and the challenges that come with it to some degree and people can expand on it based on their own experiences that they had let's talk about how do you still succeed in that situation when you are discriminated and uh, you're dealing with all these additional challenges that many other people are not dealing with? That's another good question. Um, Well, first,
2: I want to be clear that it has not been easy. And I think that when people see that I'm a full professor, they just see the full professor and they don't necessarily think about the path that I took to get there or the struggles that I faced to get there. So I just want to be clear that it hasn't been easy and I I have failed a lot. I have tried a lot of things that just didn't work out. Um and so it's not a straight path. And people should know that because I think if we talk about that, about the curvy path or the the tangents that we take, you know then it makes it a little bit easier for people to understand that people who reach a certain level of success do it with a lot of failure prior to getting there. And I think that's really important. So I just want to start off with that and that it was not easy. Um, I've worked really hard. I've worked really hard and many, many hours of, feeling unproductive because I've been so hard on myself wanting to do better and feeling, always feeling like I haven't done enough. And, and from talking to my friends, a lot of us feel this way. A lot of us feel like we need to work harder. We need to put in more hours to learn more about our trade, our craft. Um, and to be different somehow so that we can stand out and to make that promotion, the system makes it really hard when we do unique work as well, because, Success looks different, right? So in my area, I work, I do, I study children's consumer behavior. There are very few people in the academic world studying children's consumer behavior. So when you look at my resume, when you look at my CV, I don't have, it doesn't look like a successful, a stereotypical successful marketing professor CV. It looks very different. Um, and so, I think that it's really important to um, to understand that what we're interested in, we should stay interested in studying it. We shouldn't change our, our interests just because the system is looking for a, a very specific type of resume. Um, and I think that the hard work that you put in, having allies, having a good support network, will help you get to where you want to be. But I think we really need allies. We need a good support network, women supporting women, that's really important. Um, and I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a really good support network and lots of allies.
1: I agree, it is so incredibly important. Interest is something that you mentioned twice and I think it is so important because I see so many clients that they interact with, they don't really pay a lot of attention. Before they start working with us, they're not really paying a lot of attention to the interest. And it's more about what will help me be successful? Where can I earn more money? And then they reach a certain point in life and they wonder why they don't have any enthusiasm about their work, but because they even stopped listening to themselves for a very long time. And it is so incredibly important to just stop and listen. What do you actually want to do? Maybe it is Very different from what you're doing right now. And then setting up a plan, how can you transition? And also, as you mentioned, not being stopped by the fact that the people who succeed in this area are generally look in a certain way that is very different from how you look. Don't let it stop you because you can still succeed. So we spoke about allies. Maybe let's dive in a little bit on this because it's so important, building that network of people and friendships that provide support, guidance that can actually sponsor you in some way. So there is let's say there's a project that you really want. They can say, no, she can do it. He can do it. I think he will be great for it. I think she will be great for it. What are maybe some of the tips that you learned along the way that allows you to build long-term win-win relationships with people?
2: Yeah. So you have to survive on your own merit. In any field that you're in, you just have to, whether it's hard work, whether it's connecting with people who can help build your, um, build your skills and help you refine your skills, um, putting, putting in the time and effort to, to do really, really good work. So that's at the core of everything is your own work and being really good at what you do. Being really good at what you do is a lot easier if you love what you do. So this is why I talked about interest. If you love what you're doing, in academia, we get a lot of rejections when we submit our work to a journal. And so if you don't love, if I didn't love the work that I was doing, even though it's not a popular area of research at all, it's a very small area. And if I didn't love it, I wouldn't be able to deal with so many rejections. And I get rejections all the time when I submit my work for publication um but because i believe in it and i'm really passionate about it it helps me develop a very um kind of like expertise in that particular area and so that's the core. now beyond that then you can take your expertise and you develop the support network and you're not just looking for people who support you but you're actively looking for people to support so it goes both ways it and it should be a joy it is a joy to me um when I can support my friends in the field, when they get a publication, I email them. I'm so like, I'm genuinely really excited about their public because I know what it's like to get rejection. So when a friend gets a publication it's huge. I feel like I just want to fly to wherever state they live in or whatever country they're in. And I just want to celebrate them, take them out and make sure that they take a break and, and celebrate their achievements. And so allyship is I believe that it goes both ways because it also feels good. You're not always asking for someone for support. You're not always asking for someone to be there for you because you didn't get the job offer that you wanted or that you got a rejection. You want to be able to be there for other people too. So I think that you built this network by being there for people and lifting people up, even when you're down and, and things are not going well for you. And it's really hard to see all, you know, with social media, people people are always post. I remember when I was turned down for a promotion. Whenever I got on LinkedIn, I saw someone had just gotten promoted, and then I would ask myself, "Look, well, so why not me?" And then I realized it's because it's not my time. But it'll happen at some point. And it was easier for me to cheer people on because it inspired me. One day that'll be me. One day I will have the position that I want. But for now. I'm very happy cheering people on and that it's that feeling of wanting other people to do well genuinely is what propels you through some of the toughest moments, I think. Just because it allows you to feel inspired. You don't feel like it's the end of end of the world. You don't feel like no one gets promoted. Yes, people get promoted, just not me, not right
1: now, but it'll happen sometime.
2: But until then, let's cheer other people on and feel
1: inspired. I agree. And I think also when someone helps you to be grateful and to show your gratitude and your loyalty towards them, I think that always was one of the reasons I was promoted in accelerated way, because I think that senior people who were sponsoring me, they knew that they can count on me over the weekend, on public holidays, counseling vacation, and also even Doing things that maybe not will not be immediately perfect for my career, but if they needed me, I would step up and do it. So I think that that is another important element.
2: Yes, definitely. The gratitude is critical. Loyalty is critical. And I don't. I think that when you truly feel grateful and you are truly loyal, you don't really think about it. It just happens, right? You. It just feels not right to not cheer people your 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 allies or your your people in your network um, even if people who are just loosely connected to you through a friend of a friend of a friend but you know that person from a conference or something and you see them post that they just got a publication or something reaching out I think that 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 helps because it makes for a friendlier field and it's not such a a tough competition when people are are just happy for each other. And I wish that that would happen more, that people would just be happy for each other when people land jobs, people get promotions, people do things that may be hard for you to do, but you see it happening so you feel inspired and and you feel loyal to reach out to um, the people in your network who are doing really well.
1: If it happened for them, it's a bigger chance it will happen for you. And also I think that when you have this reaction that you're happy for people, it increases your chances of getting the same result. And when you feel jealous and negative emotions, other negative emotions, it decreases your chances to get results. So let's switch gears a little bit. And given that we have a little bit of time left, talk about recovering from mistakes, because that is another challenging area.
2: Sure. Um, Well, that's an area that I'm very, I have a lot of practice, I'll say, in recovering from mistakes and recovering from embarrassing moments not all mistakes are embarrassing but um i think that when you reached out to me you were specifically talking about my hbr about embarrassing moments um and so i have so much to say about that what what would you like to talk about
1: so let's talk about things you can do to help yourself not let it start dragging you down so that you can shake it off and continue doing your work and living your life.
2: Okay, so it's interesting you say that because as um, when this paper came out, I got a lot of questions from people asking me the very same question. And I must have written it. I have to go back and and reread it. Again, I must have written it in a way that made it sound like I don't get derailed, but I totally do get derailed all the time. You can't experience an an embarrassing moment and not... things just go blurry for me. When the moment it happens, things go blurry. Um, my ears get hot. I just, like all these things happened to me that didn't make it in the article because the article needed, to, you know, there was a word limit. So I couldn't go into the fact that I do get derailed and it's totally normal to get derailed. And it's totally normal to let yourself spiral, but you have to catch yourself and not spiral for too long. And I think what helps me is talking to friends, literally going through the entire and I don't talk to them right away because I'm too embarrassed. I don't even want anyone to know that whatever I did. um, I I don't even know. I don't even want them to know. That's how embarrassing some of the moments are. But maybe after a day or two, or depending on how embarrassing the, the situation was, it takes me a little time. But I then get to a point where I just have to tell someone that I did this ridiculous thing. And I usually, it's like, I cover my face. If there's a pillow, I take a pillow and literally put my face in the pillow talking to a friend. And it lets me kind of relive it. But at the same time, at the moment that that happened, whatever it was, I didn't have a pillow to to put my face in to hide my face, but I wish that I did. And so now I get that opportunity because I'm just telling a friend so I can hide my face while I'm telling the story. And then what's happening is my friends are laughing. There's absolutely no holding back. They're laughing. And then I start to realize that they're laughing because they can see it happening to them. And so I'm not the only one who's going through this. And then re- they also remind me that it's not that bad. It could have been worse. You could have done this. You could have done that. But that didn't happen. And so you're lucky that it only that only this happened, right? And so talking to people helps a lot. But I, but if you if you get derailed, if you start to spiral and you start thinking, when we get embarrassed, we relive the moment over and over and over and over again. So I wouldn't want readers to think that I don't get derailed or that I don't relive it, but I do stop it. But don't let it get out of control because that's not good, right? I stop it by talking to, to my friends and reliving it helps a lot because I relive it in a way where I can calm myself down by hiding my face, which is what I originally wanted to do when all the embarrassing moments happen. So talk to people.
1: And would you recommend people to laugh when it happens as a way of dealing with the situation?
2: As far as literally laughing, I think it depends on your personality. So I'm a person who loves to laugh. And I think that when people do embarrassing things, it's hard for me. I try to be nice about it and polite about it. But... I will laugh because I can see it happening to myself. And then I, I think sometimes it helps the person when you start laughing and just saying, it's okay. I can see myself doing it too. Um, but when you are going through it, sometimes depending on what it is, sometimes laughing doesn't work. Sometimes it's so embarrassing. Maybe like tripping and falling might be like on stage, going on stage might be a really embarrassing thing that you may not feel like laughing about at that moment. But talking about it, I think, helps. And just letting people know that you acknowledge the situation, you own the situation.
1: And if it's a situation where you don't have a supportive environment, let's say you're working in a company that is very formal and you made an embarrassing mistake and you try to speak to friends, but you still feel really bad. Any other thoughts that come to mind for someone to help recover?
2: I think journaling would help. So you don't have to talk to people in the organization. You can talk to, I, I will call up friends who aren't in academia. So they don't really know what industry, I mean, what, what happens in academia. They're, you know, doctors and, and lawyers or in other fields. And so it often helps because, um, you have someone who's not in that situation who can still say, oh, that's totally normal. I can see that happening to me. Um, and so in your industry, you may feel like you don't want to talk about it to someone who's down the hall because you want to uphold a particular image. And so it may, might not be comfortable to talk to them. If you talk to friends who aren't in the field, that's equally helpful. And then if that doesn't work, then journal. I think when you write things out, you start for me, I, I journal about a lot of things. And most of my HBRs have started off as just journaling, just writing about I putting my ideas down. And so when you start to journal about, I can't believe this happened to me, you start writing down your feelings. How, how, I feel so awful. I can't walk out of the house. I just want to find a hole and jump into the hole and just hide in the hole. You go through all of those and then you start talk, talking to yourself, journaling about how do I get out of this situation? What am I going to do right now? Just, I don't feel like facing the world. And even acknowledging that you don't want to face the world, that's really important too. Because then you start to think, okay, I don't want to face the world, but I know I have to face the world. So what's next? What am I going to do? And then you can start jotting down, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go for a run. I'm out in the world, but I don't really have to talk to anyone. I don't have to see anyone, but I am out there. I have left the house. For me, sometimes it's, I don't want to leave the house, (laughs) you know? And so you you take these little baby steps and and I think that journaling helps. It really forces you to just sit down, own it, figure out what you're going to do next.
1: And could you share one of the stories from the article and then how you recovered? Because I think it will be a good example for someone to have in their mind as a template. Yeah, I think I'll share the story about
2: when I first started teaching. And um, I, okay, so I was really nervous about teaching and I, because I, I didn't have my degree yet. I was a graduate student and I was just so scared that, you know, we talk about this image, right? Of what a leader looks like. It wasn't me. I did not fit that image at all. And so I taught my first class and the, I walk in and I have a water bottle there. And why do I have a water bottle there? Because I had gone to different people's classrooms, these professors classrooms and observed, I wanted to do so well. I did my homework. I went to all these different classes that I didn't need to go to, but I did. And I watched and I watched the best speakers and I watched how they carried themselves, how they started the class as they were speaking they were drinking water and it was as if everyone just stood still for or sat still for them so that they could sip on this water because they had so much important information to share i thought i'm going to do that because that's what a very confident professor does they'll just speak and sip on water and everyone will just be quiet and wait for their next words it's that important i'm going to do that and so it was not genuine. I have to admit now that it was not genuine. I tried to project this image of being a professor when I was not a professor, or just a grad student, and it didn't go well because I hit my, I hit the bottom, the bottle into my mouth, and so I'm lucky that I didn't um, bleed, and so I hit it, and then I pretended kind of that I didn't hit my mouth, which I clearly did. And the water started to dribble down the sides of my mouth. And I was wearing a silk shirt. And like you could tell that it was wet. And um, But I could still continue. I was so stubborn. I was like, this is not happening to me, right? I'm telling myself this isn't happening. So I'm going to keep drinking this water. Then I started choking on the water because I clearly should have stopped. And, um, and some more water dribbles down. So first it dribbles down because I hit my lip with the with the water bottle. And then now I'm choking. So then now I have to stop because it's just one of those where you're choking and you just think there's no way I can stop coughing, right? And so now the students are asking, Are you okay? And that's the worst when people are asking, Are you okay? And just want them to stop talking to you because you're not okay. Um, And so I walked, I just walked out to just, I walked out. I wanted to walk home actually when I walked out. It was that embarrassing to me because you're this young graduate student and you want, you want the classroom's respect. Right. And then what do you do the first day? You just like dribble water all over your, your face and you're choking. So then I, I knew that I had to come back, of course. So I came back and this uh, student from the back of the classroom said, asked me if I needed some water. And so I just went up, I just casually went up and took the water and just said that, yeah, because you know, um, I, used up all the water the water that I had already um and the whole class just laughed they just thought that it was so funny and at the time I have to say at the time I wondered are they laughing at me like what why I didn't know why they were laughing but I also did find it funny so the other thing about me is that I just make light of situations very easily and I think it's because this embarrassing stuff happened to me and you know I can't avoid it. Somehow it just happens. But I think that, um, laughing about it and talking about it and clearly I put it in the paper has still helped me process because even now, when I think about some of those situations that are published in that article, they're still embarrassing. I still think back and I still relive the moments of, I can't believe I did that. It was terrible. i never want to face the world again. So when, if you're, um, if you're listening to this podcast, If embarrassing things happen to you, it's totally normal to feel like you don't want to face the world, but don't hide for too long. Just talk to people, relive it, but relive it in a way that you can act out, you know, hiding from the world. (laughs) And then I think that that's helpful.
1: And I think maybe another helpful thing that helps me to overcome situations like that, mistakes and so on, is that I think, okay, but I'm a leader. It's an opportunity for me to show how to handle something that happens to all of us.
2: It is. But I mean, to be honest with you, when things happen, I don't think that I'm a leader. That's not what comes to my mind. And it's great if I could do that, if I had the insight to do that. And if I had the the wherewithal to, to even think that way, but things blur. That's how like, the embarrassing moments that I'm referring to are embarrassing moments where things just come to a blur and you you don't really know how to recover. And, and I also think that that's important for your listeners to, to understand that we all have moments where we just don't want to continue. We just wish that the moment was not happening and that we, we find it very hard to continue. Those are truly embarrassing moments when I can't think that I'm a leader. I can't think of what what could I do right now to benefit my students to help them see that leaders also mess up. And so I think that what I do is really just what I do. It's not because I think that I'm, I wish. I wish that it was because I was such a great leader that like this is a great teaching moment, right? But I actually don't think that way. I'm just trying to get through the moment. And I think that it's if we if we could just get through the moment somehow, that will help us. And I and in the end, yeah, it's great that students can see that. It's great that
1: um, junior people in your company can see that you recover. Very true. And maybe sometimes when there is some space to think about it. People can now use this as a trick. Just think about, I'm a leader. This is an opportunity for me to teach people within my team, for example, how to handle a mistake. I know that we are coming to the end of our session. Any other final words you want to share with people? Maybe a couple of things you would like them to start doing differently, maybe on Monday morning at 8 a.m. when they come to the office or to the home office, anything they could incorporate based on our discussion today.
2: Yes. Um, Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Every morning that you wake up is a different day. And so, regardless of whatever accomplishments you had the day before or mistakes that you made the day before, today is a different day. And don't focus on achievements too much from the previous day. Also, don't focus too much on your mistakes. And every day will be more exciting.
1: And every day you'll learn something new. And every day you become better. And follow your interest. I feel that was such an important message from you.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Lan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule. Where can our listeners learn more about you, your work, anything you want to share?
2: Yes. So my website is lonchaplin.com. So just first and last name. And I have all my publications on there and um, my nonprofit is on there. So everything that... Uh, listeners
1: would want to know is on my website. So please check it out. Lan, thank you very much again. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me. And for everyone watching and listening, thank you for spending this time with us. And I look forward to speak with you all next time.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing